Welcome to the UCLA Anderson Forecast's latest Forecast Direct. Uh, we have an exciting guest with us today. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, I'm Jerry Nicholsberg. I'm the faculty director of the Anderson Forecast. And this month's Forecast Direct is with Professor Brad DeLong. Uh, Brad's a professor of economics at the University of California, Berkeley, our sister uh, institution. Uh, he's an economic historian with a deep understanding of the uh, sweep of history and, uh, and how one looks at that and analyzes both economic and societal events. Uh, Brad mm -hmm. was educated at Harvard University, and he also taught there prior to coming to Berkeley, a fellow of the National Bureau of Economic Research, and formerly Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury in the Clinton administration, uh, and has been a speaker at past forecast events, and we were just talking about uh, a future one. Brad has recently written a fascinating uh, book called Slouching Towards Utopia, an Economic History of the 20th Century. And it's a view of history that expands way beyond the 20th century as a way to understand the 20th century and I thought it would be great to have a conversation with Brad to try and understand this. Uh, and maybe to start it off, Brad, well, first of all, welcome to UCLA, however Thank virtual. You very, very much. You know, um, I hope it's sunnier and warmer than it is up here on the Berkeley on this rainy day. We have sheets of rain today. Uh, uh, with lots and lots of rain. Okay. Uh, but let, let's start off with your book is entitled slouching towards utopia and slouching is sort of an interesting word uh, yes. as a kid my mother told me never to slouch mm -hmm. and 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 yet we have an economic history that's slouching yes. can, can you explain uh, what you mean by slouching towards utopia well this was the working title and i thought it wouldn't be the real title i'd think of a better title and i never did um, the idea is that humanity now has close to and is rapidly approaching the stage where we have enough technological knowledge about how to manipulate nature and organize humans to produce enough to live in, well, what every previous century would regard as a utopia. Yet somehow we do not manifest, we manifestly do not live in a utopia and we don't seem to be getting there. Um, so there's utopia and we ought to be heading towards it but it's not a walk or a march or a strut or a run or a jog, you know, it's a slouch. It's something is going significantly wrong. The word slouch actually comes from the great Irish poet, William Butler Yeats, that his post-World War I poem, The Second Coming, you know, when you're gonna steal, you steal from the best and William Butler Yeats is the best. The last line of his second coming is talking about how it's not going to be the utopian, the paradisical, the descent of the new Jerusalem second coming we ex that we expect. Instead, there is some less what um, rough beast is slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. Joan Didion stole the whole slouching towards Bethlehem phrase for the title of her book of essays about you know, California in the late 1960s um, during the hippie era. And so I thought slouching towards utopia would make a good working title. I never thought of a better one. Okay, uh, okay. Uh, and and you're right. Coming from the best, 
uh, Yates, mm -hmm. uh, Didion, of, uh, uh, of course. So you talk about the long 20th century and uh, a century is 100 years, but your long 20th century is about 150 years. Yes. Uh, and, and so how do you extend the boundaries of a 20th century? This is, some, this, is something, this is something historians have been doing for quite a while to say, I'm going to write a history of the 16th century, you know, but I'm going to start not in 1500 when the 16th century begins. I'm going to start in 1492 or I'm going to start in 1453 and I'm going to make it a long century because that way allows me to better tell the story um, that I want to tell. The story I want to tell is that before 1870, technological growth was so slow and, you know, Malthusian pressures were so high, you know, the pressure to have more children. Um, that back before 1870, it was, you know, the, it was high patriarchy. You know, if you were a woman or if you're a man too, and if you reached the age of 50 and didn't have a surviving son, well, you were pretty close to being toast. You had virtually no power over anything or no influence. And yet a third of women back before 1870 reached the age of 50. Those who did, did so without surviving sons. So before 1870, improvements in technology are slow. They're overwhelmingly eaten up by the fact that there are more people and smaller farm sizes. And so incomes are pretty stagnant. After 1870, the growth rate of technology explodes. You have Schumpeterian creative destruction, remaking the economy every generation. And every generation of humans has the technology to live twice as well as the previous one. All of a sudden, the potential to have a rich world, um, a world in which everyone could potentially someday have enough comes into view. That's a huge change. And that's the ride that humanity has been on since 1870, which is very different than the ride it was on before. So, so what caused that, that jump in 1870? You know, why, why 1870 and not 100 years before or 50 well, years know, Everyone has their favorite. They talk about coinage or the rule of law or constraints on the executive or the steam engine or engineering or the Royal Society. And it's, we won't take anything except by experiment. Um, all of those didn't get the growth rate of technology worldwide up to more than say half a percent per year. But then in 1870, um, we get the industrial research lab all of a sudden to rationalize and routinize the creation and development, the discovery and development of new technologies. And in the past, an inventor, a technologist, a scientist would have had an idea but then they'd have had to spend the rest of their life trying to figure out how to actually implement that idea rather than handing it off to people who would rationalize and routinize it. Um, we got the modern corporation to rationalize and routinize the development and deployment of new ideas. Once you'd proofed it in one factory, you could spread it. And we got globalization so you could spread it potentially worldwide. And those three things all hitting around 1870 made the difference. And they close to quadrupled the rate of growth of techno human technology after 1870 relative to before. So that's when the ride starts. And so that's when I thought I should start the narrative of the book. So, so uh, one of the things that happened in the late uh, 19th century, in part of your long 20th century, was the rise of cheap energy with fossil fuels. Yes, and, yes, and, and yes. Petroleum. 
how does that fit into that triumvirate of uh, of elements that created this big jump in technology and living standards? Um, well, you know, oil is pretty hard to handle, right? Um, that okay. Um, maybe when we want to back up twenty thousand years ago, and maybe we want to back up to the last round of glaciers. And, you know, the last round of glaciers were incredible bulldozers that scraped all the post-carboniferous rock off of a large chunk of Northwest Europe so that you know, the coal was simply sitting there on the surface at very low elevation. So you could float it. You could just pick it up off the ground originally, then you could float it off. And your big problem was always getting the coal mine dry enough so you could pick it up. Um, and that powered the steam engine, that powered the steam power economy, that you know, produced a lot of growth, although not fast enough, up until 1870. Um, but after 1870, well, you know, the really, really cheap coal was mined out by and large, um, and you had to start digging deeper and deeper. You know, economist William Stanley Jevons made, in fact, his reputation by saying that Britain's industrial economy is in serious danger because we're running out of really cheap coal and the expense of coal regards machinery we don't know quite know how to build. But then you get the industrial research lab and the corporation. And so John D. Rockefeller and company are able to spend money like water you know, to figure out how to handle um, this stuff. You know, that you go even to a refinery today and you look at what happens and you think about it, you know, and it is absolutely, absolutely amazing. The heat, the temperature, the processes, the way they take the oil, the way they crack it, um, all of the different distillates that they manage to produce with overwhelming efficiency. You know, it's a high tech, high science, very sophisticated chemical operation. And it was so within a generation after 1870. Um, and that, you know, unlocking the stored sunlight in coal that had been sitting there for half, for 400 million years or so, was an enormous boost to the energy economy. You know, but it was oil that was the real thing that allowed humanity to apply enough power massively um, anywhere it wanted to. And the ability to do that was something that you couldn't produce back in the pre-1870 economy of an individual inventor with an individual idea. You, know, you needed modern chemistry. Um, you needed universities and science and technicians and large industrial research labs and the great German organic chemistry push and so forth um, in order to get the oil economy up and running. So it really fits in in your industrial research lab to organize this complicated process. Yes. To yes, move liquid yes. petroleum yeah. into yeah. gasoline yeah. and other fuels. Yes, yes. Uh, now you're making me feel sad about the book that I did not write, right? <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's 600 pages as it is. And at one point I was thinking about it being a thousand pages, which, you know, Basic would not publish. Um, for that, I'd have to go to UC Press and it would be published in two volumes and we wouldn't have any kind of salespeople beating the drum for it and so forth. Um, yes, I, re I remember you lamenting. Yeah, and so I thought, I thought the book would be kind of half, you know, um, 
industries and technology and half political economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and of kind of the 20 little industry level set pieces I had planned for it. Um, well, basically 18 of them bit the dust and I was left with only two set pieces on what the technologies were. Um, one on TSMC and semiconductors and one on Nikola Tesla and alternating current electricity. And so, you know, the petroleum chemistry one and 17 others kind of bit the dust and are still there on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. And you're making me think I really should revive them. And, uh, and on the other and, hand, on the other hand, Vatslav Smil has already written those history of technology books and industry books and has written them very, very well indeed. Yeah, and, and by the way, in... Uh, this book, Slouching Towards Utopia, there are lots of really fascinating vignettes, uh, like the one with uh, Tesla and Westinghouse and Edison. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but you, something you just touched on, political economy, uh, leads me to uh, a question that I want to ask, which has to do with rights. And so you talk about Hayek and property rights, but what I found really interesting in the book was Polanyi rights. Yes. Rights that are not associated with property, but that in general people think they have, and that has a big influence on the structure mm. of society and the yes. allocation of resources. Can you comment on that in the context well, then, of- And they can be good or bad, right? Like for example, your neighbors, the good citizens of Santa Monica, Pacific Palisades and Malibu, believe they have the right to nothing to ever be built in those communities so that they will continue to look exactly like they looked when they moved in. And yet, given how wonderfully desirable those places are along the Pacific coast in the north, right, in northwest LA, and how many, many people want to live there, um, that decision that you know, the rights of the people of the northwest corner of LA to the built and natural environment that was there when they moved in is having a major, major impact. Um, Not so much abstractly on economic growth, but also that a huge number of the people who are living in LA find themselves living far from where they ideally would like to be. And a lot of people who would like to live in LA find they can't afford um, to come there. Um, So on the one hand, there is um, a lot very good about a society validating and enforcing powerful rights, you know, other than property rights. For after all, if the only rights that matter are property rights, then the only ones who have social power will be those who have valuable property. And everyone else's life will exist. Everyone else's style of life can exist only to the extent that it satisfies a maximum profitability test administered by somebody someplace else. Um, But on the other hand, you know, these rights can can be things that severely hobble our attempts to deploy technology to make us significantly richer. But Karl Polanyi said, yes, there is this dilemma, but the most important thing to recognize is that society simply will not stand um, for a world in which the only rights that matter are the property rights and the only people who have any social power or voice are the rich who own things. And that that opposition over the past 150 years, um, are we going to organize a society which maximizes the market's ability to crowdsource applying technology to create wealth? 
Um, or are we going to recognize to have a society that recognizes, enforces, and vindicates other rights? And which of these other Polanyian rights for whom is it going to vindicate? That is one of the principal um, axes on which, well, much of history of the 20th century has turned in one way or another. So today is an election day, and I suspect that this uh, tension between property yep. rights and, and what you characterize as uh, Polanyi rights uh, yes. is a big part of the election and how we allocate resources in, in the U.S. Uh, do you have some thoughts on that? It is. It is their burbling around. It is their burbling around um, under the surface, you know, um, that to a remarkably large degree. Um, that, you know, one thing on the ballot is what it is, you know, conventional now to call um, neoliberalism, although I've never thought that was an especially good word, um, that the belief that you, the world as it stands was in the 1970s and to some extent is today kind of over-bureaucratized and that we need to be doing things to let market chips fall where they may more often, if only because the market is a very good way of you know, crowdsourcing solutions to social problems, because you then give everyone with control over resources a financial incentive to solve the social problem, as long as market prices are in accord with social values. Um, and so there was this big wheel around 1980, a shift away from social democracy towards a more we need to let the market rip. Um, and to accept the unequal income distribution the market will impose upon us um, as a way of accelerating or even maintaining human progress. And right now, no one is happy with that social decision. Um, everyone wants a significant change. The problem is that no one is quite sure what shape that change take, will take, and people are calling for change in very, very different directions. And so, you know, you want to say that you had a classical liberal political economy order mostly guiding this process of technology, technological, rapid technological development from 1870 until it fell apart in 1914. You had confusion from 1914 to 1933. You had the creation of a New Deal order in the early 1930s under FDR that was then spread to Western Europe. You then have a shift to a neoliberal order um, in the late 1970s, as historian Gary Gersel um, describes in his very excellent book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. And now you have elections where everyone is demanding something else and no one quite knows what the something else is or how to implement it. And that I think that provides a very good frame um, with which to look at what's happening in this election as well as the last election and the next election. Uh, so you end the long 20th century in 2010. Mm -hmm. Why is it 2010 and not 2020 or still going on? Well, you know, it could be 2020. It could even be 2000, right? Um, say in 2007, it became clear that we had forgotten or perhaps had never properly learned 
you know, what the right way was to regulate our financial markets for stability. In 2010, it became clear that we'd forgotten or perhaps had never fully properly learned how to rapidly restore an economy to full employment after a financial crisis. Um, in 2001, we discovered that forms of religious war and terror that we thought we had outgrown, humanity had outgrown four centuries ago, with the end of the wars of the Reformation, were back in 2003. Um, the United States decided that it was going to no longer willing to be bound by the international order, but instead was going to throw its weight around like a great power. In 2006, I would argue in large part because of the decay of industrial research labs under bottom line pressure from Wall Street on corporations, um, our underlying rate of technological technology growth you know, began a fairly steep decline, um, so much so that indeed it's Taiwan rather than Intel that now makes the best semiconductors in the world. Then in 2013, 2014, you get the coming of, you know, say, restored right-wing populist movements. And this year in 2022, we got the coming back of large-scale war between significant powers with the idea of changing national borders. And all of those are things that are very different um, from the story I told of 1870 to 2010, which is of technology rushing forward and humanity rapidly figuring out how to bake a sufficiently large economic pie, but not knowing how to slice and taste it, not knowing how to equitably distribute what we were producing and not knowing how to utilize it to live wisely and well. And so now we face a different story, um, you know, one more fraught with bigger and different problems than humanity faced between 1870 and whenever. And since the average of all of these things happening is about 2010, I chose 2010 as the date to bring the story to the close. So as we look at the future that's ahead of us, and of course, this is all speculation, uh, except for the fact that climate change is not speculation. Yes, uh, yes. We're, we're looking at a physical environment that is changing very rapidly. And mm -hmm. this is the sort of thing that induces a lot of uh, technological innovation, technological change, yes. and, and therefore productivity growth. And, and you can think mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, the time between 1914 and 1945 with the massive destruction of old Right. capital stock and the replacement of new, better, yeah. more technologically yeah. advanced capital stock is, mm -hmm. is jump-starting uh, growth. Are, are we looking at uh, that as uh, a new long century, the long 21st century or 22nd century, or uh, is your view more apocalyptic? Um, well, that Larry Summers is kind of on the optimistic side of this, saying that the 21st century story will indeed be the same as the 20th century story. That, you know, global warming, nuclear proliferation, you know, right-wing and left-wing terrorism and so forth will be bumps on the road, be bumps on the road, just as there were so many, many huge bumps on the road in the 20th century. But indeed, that technologies are continuing going to race forward. We can see a lot of them already. 
And so the story will still be that humanity figures out how to bake a much, much larger economic pie with each generation. And we wrestle with the problems of how to distribute and utilize our enormous and increasing wealth. And that come 2100, you'll look, someone will write a story not about the long 20th century, but about the long quarter millennium, right? That starts in 1870. I confess right now, I feel a little more apocalyptic and I don't know whether it's the effect of age. And so as a result that when I wake up, I hurt, especially in my left knee and whether that distorts my judgment um, or whether we did indeed kind of fail to stay on the path um, in which we were even slouching towards utopia after 2010 and are now lost in a dark wood. You know, and you know, night is coming on. Um, that is, after all, in our hands, or rather in the hands of those younger than us who are going to make the big decisions. Right, and one uh, thing that happened in the long 20th century that, uh, that you talk about quite a bit is very extensive migration I think yeah. uh, if I remember yeah. correctly, about a quarter of the world's population moved. Mm -hmm. uh, climate change has the same potential to have big migrations. It does. It does. Do you think it would have the same kind of impact, or is this a uh, more difficult migration for humanity to deal with? Well, the, the migrations starting in 1870 were overwhelmingly migrations to opportunity. Um, that people were moving towards something where they saw a much better life was on offer. You know, whether it's someone, whether it's the quarter of the poppy of the male population of Norway that seems to move to the um, far side of the Great Lakes between 1870 and 1914, or the millions who left you know China for places in Southeast Asia that promised them higher wages on plantations producing rubber and palm oil and such. Well, these migrations seem to me largely to be people who will have to flee the Ganges Delta because there are too many typhoons roaring up the Bay of Bengal, or people who are flooded out of their farms in Pakistan, or people who find the waters no longer reliable in Sichuan because, you know, the monsoon moisture that's supposed to fall on the north flank of the Himalayas is now falling on the south flank and, you know, drowning Pakistan, but leaving much of China significantly, significantly drier, right? I mean, we can see how California has gotten drier only in the past generation. Um, with consequences at the moment that are very unpleasant for air quality and for asthma sufferers during fire season. But, you know, there are long run, not that very long run worries about how do we maintain Central Valley agriculture if we have less snowpack and more rain more rainfall on um, the Sierras. So, so that, that leaves us with a huge question, a lot of uncertainty about the next century. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're about at the end of our time. And yes. I want to urge all of those who are watching this podcast 
to get this book. It is fascinating. Thank you. And uh, and Brad has dug much more deeply than we've had time here into uh, what makes for a Malthusian outcome of mm -hmm. stagnant uh, economic growth and uh, near subsistence uh, living and rapid economic growth. And I think we leave with a big question mark as to whether or not we return to a Malthusian world or mm -hmm. whether we have, I, I think as, as you succinctly said, Brad, whether we have a quarter millennia of increasing standards of living. It's sure. a very thoughtful book uh, and uh, Brad, always a pleasure. And thank you for coming uh, on the podcast and visiting us, however, virtually uh, here oh. at UCLA. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. You're right. It's been a great pleasure to be here.